0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Missy Ryan, national security reporter for the Washington Post. It's been five months since the United States withdrew its remaining forces from Afghanistan. Since then, the Taliban has consolidated its control of the country and Afghanistan's future remains uncertain at best. I'm honored to be here today with the head of the United Nations Refugee Agency for a conversation about the ongoing crisis in Afghanistan. Commissioner Filippo Grandi, welcome to Washington Post Live.
1: Thank you very much for having me on this important topic.
0: It's a pleasure to be with you. Commissioner Grandi, Afghanistan's economy is in shambles. Winter weather is setting in and the nation is gripped by food insecurity. As UNHCR has reported, over 3.5 million people are displaced within Afghanistan, including at least 700,000 uprooted during 2021. How would you characterize the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan right now?
1: You gave already some of the most uh, important elements of a very, very serious humanitarian situation. Now, a little correction, if I may, to your initial um, uh, presentation in in the video, uh, the three and a half million people that are displaced. This is a, a symptom of humanitarian crisis. They actually were already displaced when the Taliban took over in in August. They were displaced by years of conflict between the the previous government and and the Taliban. And uh, uh, It's the question is that after the 15th of August, the situation has deteriorated further in so many different ways. Um, More than half of the population on the brink of famine, Um, a very big percentage, uh, I would say 80% of the health system paralyzed and unable to work, Um, huge water problem compounded by an endemic drought that climate change is making even worse. Um, uh, 70% of the teachers are not being paid. Now, the the causes of this are very complex and we can talk about that, but certainly at the moment, uh, the humanitarian response is extremely urgent because winter has set in, it's snowing very heavily in vast parts of Afghanistan and the needs are growing exponentially.
0: And as you know, this was already a very poor country, even prior to this crisis. Um, Commissioner Grandi, you were one of the first high-level foreign officials to hold talks with the Taliban after the group came to power in August of last year. Can you talk to us about those conversations and about, more generally, the United Nations role in a situation like this, given that the majority of outside governments have been reluctant to engage fully with the new Taliban government?
1: Yeah, we, um, uh, some of my colleagues and I have been visiting Kabul um, quite regularly since the takeover of the Taliban. I was there in September, pretty early on, a few weeks after the takeover. And I think this engagement is important. At the moment, it is uh, you know very much on the humanitarian side. And uh, on that front, I have to say, engagement has been relatively positive, constructive. In fact, um, humanitarian organizations, UN, NGOs, Red Cross and others, have more access to more areas of Afghanistan now than they have had for years. Because that conflict that I spoke about that displaced so many people is actually... uh, isn't happening right now, has ended with the takeover of the Taliban. That has opened up many areas that were previously very insecure. It's interesting, there is a figure that is very seldom quoted. We estimate that 170,000 displaced people especially among the most recently displaced, have actually returned to their homes since August. Now, this may be, may sound counterintuitive, but it is because many areas are more secure now than they have been in a long time. And this we need to take advantage of this. We need to bring as much as possible humanitarian assistance to those areas to offset the risks, the life-saving risks that many Afghans are running at the moment. And then, of course, in that space, which humanitarian dialogue is opening up with the Taliban, we need to use that space also in many other ways. We need to continue to promote the notion that women must work, that minorities must be represented, that girls must attend schools. These are complex discussions with the Taliban, but that space allows us to have those discussions on behalf of the international community.
0: So in addition to the absence of civil conflict that you just described, has the Taliban government facilitated, is it facilitating the humanitarian work that you and your UN partners and the aid agencies are doing?
1: I would say, yes. Um, It has, um, uh, at least I would say, it has not put obstacles to the work that we do. And, uh, uh, And whenever we have encountered obstacles, Remember, this is a very fluid situation. This is an insurgent movement that has taken over a country probably much faster than they even imagined. And therefore they have huge problems of managing this authority that they have acquired. So there's many problems that emerge all the times in many parts of the countries. The pattern usually has been one of cooperation. If the UN, not just UNHR, but the UN as a whole, the UN mission flags, highlights that there is a problem in a certain area. Generally, not always, generally this problem is addressed. If we don't have access, if our women employees are not allowed, we flag this issue and it is generally addressed. So, so far, so good. But of course, the challenges remain very big. Uh, there are many areas in which we do not agree with what the, ta- the policies the Taliban's are enforcing. But like I said, there is a space for dialogue, and that space is vital, literally vital, for millions of Afghans.
0: I know that one of the biggest questions that the international community would like an answer to is whether this new Taliban government, the Taliban 2.0, is the same Taliban uh, that ruled Afghanistan very harshly during the 1990s. It may be too soon to answer that question, but what I would like to ask you is, what does the Taliban's ideology and its outlook, as we can observe it to date, on certain issues, including, as you mentioned before, the role of women um, and religious minorities, mean for the work that UNHCR is doing with displaced Afghans? How does that affect the vital assistance that you all are providing?
1: This is such an important question that you're asking and I think it has many aspects I'll try to be quick in responding. Uh, first of all are they is this the same type of Taliban government that we saw in the 90s you know I've been involved in Afghanistan for decades so I have some even some personal comparisons that I can make uh, I don't know it's difficult to say Certainly what has changed, and it has been said many times already, is Afghanistan itself. The Afghanistan that the Taliban took over in 1996, 1997, was profoundly different from the Afghanistan that they have taken over recently. And they have to live with that. They have to cope with that. They have to deal with that situation. And that I think is positive in the sense that many investments were made. Many people are saying all those investments are wasted. No, I think all the investments made in 20 years between 2001 and 2021 have changed the country and have made it impossible for anybody to rule it in the way that was tried tried 25 years ago. So there's a difference there. And uh, what does it mean for us? It means that, of course, we're still dealing with complex aspects of that ideology and that, mode of governance. But remember, and that was so obvious to me, even in the, fir- the few days I spent there, and it's certainly obvious to me, obvious to colleagues of mine that day in, day out are dealing with the Taliban. They're not a homogeneous group. They're very diverse, This different constituencies. They have also to uh, cater to certain constituencies. But I think that there is certainly a vast substantive group among the Taliban with whom we can talk also about the difficult issues that we have mentioned, especially the rights of women, the right of women and the right of minorities, which are still very open discussion. So the dilemma here or the difficulty here, the challenge here is to balance the need to deliver quickly humanitarian assistance to millions of Afghans in desperate need And at the same time, to keep open the discussion on the difficult issues. But without blocking humanitarian assistance, that would be a great mistake. But it is a difficult balancing act, as you can certainly appreciate.
0: In August, UNHCR released a non-return advisory for Afghanistan calling for a halt to forced returns. Can you tell us, uh, describe the conditions for us that the displaced Afghans are living in right now? What sort of facilities are they living in? What sort of support are they getting from either the Taliban government or from the international community?
1: Well, the, let me unpack a bit this important issue. Uh, the UN estimates that there's about 9 million displaced people in the country. They have been displaced over the years by so many factors, drought, natural disasters and conflict three and a half million at least by conflict. So that's a huge, one of the biggest, perhaps the biggest displacement situation inside the country of any country in the world. Then you have refugees outside the country. There are at least six million Afghans in neighboring countries in Iran and Pakistan in particular. Two and a half million about, a little less, are registered as refugees and the others have other types of status. And then you have Afghans in many other countries, in Turkey, in Europe, the diaspora is very big. So what we said to everybody, to people, to countries hosting Afghans outside the country is don't send anybody back at the moment. The situation is too fragile. And what we're doing for displaced people inside the country, we're giving them humanitarian assistance because many of them are homeless, for example, they need shelter, they need food, they need healthcare. And we are also helping those that opt for going back to their provinces of origin. And as I said, some of them are doing that. So it's a very fluid situation. One more point, if I may, which is very important, looking to the future. Uh, I am usually very prudent in my forecasts. But if the social and economic situation on the, of the country is not tackled quickly, I foresee much bigger movements once the winter season uh, uh, ends and travel conditions become easier. It's, it's a very real risk. And here I have to add a very important point. Humanitarian assistance that I have spoken about can keep the country going for a while can keep the people going for a while but it's not going to be enough remember because of the taliban takeover development assistance has have been has been frozen there's no cash resources circulating in the country. There's a lot of problems linked to sanctions and other political measures. Now, this needs to be revisited. I understand why those measures are in place, but I think they need to be balanced against the fact that the country needs to function, needs to offer a minimum of basic services to its people. Otherwise, if that is not resolved, I foresee I foresee almost without any doubt that we will see larger internal displacement and also displacement across the borders to neighboring countries and maybe beyond.
0: I wanna push you on that uh, the economic question in a moment, but first let's go back to Iran and Pakistan, which you were just mentioning in terms of receiving uh, millions of Afghan refugees. Can you talk to us a little bit about your recent work with Iran regarding Afghan refugees?
1: Yeah, I visited um, Iran in December, just before Christmas. And actually I was in Pakistan also in September when I went to Afghanistan. This is because of course, for my organization, work with Afghan refugees and the vast majority are in these two countries is, is a priority. This is our core mandate. And here I want to flag an important point. There's a lot of focus on the current crisis in Afghanistan, but let's not forget that these two countries have hosted Afghan refugees for more than 40 years. And in recent years, it has become very difficult to mobilize the resources they need to fulfill this international responsibility of hosting Afghan refugees. Now my visits were, my recent visits were also to assess whether we see an increase in the number of Afghans crossing into the neighboring countries. And we have not seen a very big, massive outflow, as we saw in different periods of of recent Afghan history although we have seen people moving into these two countries, uh, during my visit to Iran, the government is estimating actually a rather large Uh, movement into Iran, they estimate that this could be up to 500,000 people that have moved into the country since August. It's difficult for us to estimate because there is no statistics, there is no scientific count that has been carried out, but I went there to discuss with the government how we can do that, how we can have a better idea of the new arrivals, where they are, organize them, provide them with assistance. Here, I want to make another point related to Iran. Iran has always had very forward-looking policies, very humanitarian policies in respect of Afghans. There are specific laws and provisions that allow all Afghan children to have access to education, for example. And uh, certain sectors of Iran's economy, in particular the construction industry, have traditionally been an important source of livelihoods for millions of Afghans, be they refugees or people with other status. Of course, Iran is under sanctions. Iran is going through a very difficult economic crisis of its own for many different reasons. So at the moment, the struggling, with supporting this additional Afghan population. And from the humanitarian point of view, this is not a political judgment. Of course, I went there there also to appeal to the international community for more help to be given to Iran as it comes under renewed pressure because of the Afghan uh, uh, refugee uh, situation.
0: And has there been a response from the international community in terms of providing the additional support that is needed in Iran, as you just mentioned, and potentially in Pakistan, which also is facing its own economic and social challenges.
1: Yes, there has been. I think that uh, one side effect, if you wish, of the August uh, events was to bring more visibility to the Afghan situation. And for the first time in years, we saw an increase in financial contributions. You know, the, the UN appeal, not just UNHR, the UN appeal that appeals plural, that were put out in 2021 for Afghanistan were largely subscribed. The refugee appeal that we put out, an extraordinary one that we put out uh, in September, was 70% funded. You may think it's not much, but compared to previous much lower percentages, it was a better response. Now, next uh, Tuesday, the UN, including UNHCR, will put out another big, humanitarian appeal, both for inside Afghanistan and for the neighboring countries, and I do hope, and I would like to use this opportunity to really reinforce this, I do hope that there will be a good response. It is vital to provide humanitarian assistance at the moment for all the reasons that we've been discussing uh, today.
0: Mr. Commissioner, I'd like to go back to Afghanistan's economy, which, as you mentioned, prior to the Taliban takeover, was heavily dependent on foreign aid. Donor funds accounted for about three quarters of the country's revenue. And now, with the Taliban in charge, much of that uh, monetary flow has dried up. And in addition, the United States has frozen billions of dollars in Afghan reserves that are held in New York banks, exacerbating the economic crisis. Do you believe, as many U.S. lawmakers and diplomats have urged, that the United States and other nations need to be more flexible in providing financial assistance, despite the sanctions that you referenced earlier? Um, and how can they do that without uh, without uh, running foul of many of these laws that have been in place since uh, 2001?
1: Of course, I believe that. Flexibility is a must in a situation like that. We're talking about millions of human lives. We're also talking about, frankly, the stability of a region that is beset by many problems. Let's not forget that the the Taliban themselves, after they took over, have had to face their own insurgency from other uh, uh, armed groups. And, uh, of course, further impoverishment of the country will constitute, will create fertile ground for new uh, terrorism and new insurgencies which have a terrible uh, potential to destabilize the region. That's why Pakistan, Iran, Central Asian states are so worried about that. So I think it's important whilst the pressure is kept on the key issues that we all care for, rights of women, rights of minorities. I've mentioned this many times already. We need to keep that pressure, but we also need to make sure that services function, that Afghans that are sick can go to hospital, that the pitiful COVID vaccination rates, I think less than 10% at the moment uh, uh, are, are, are increased, uh, that uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about Uh, girls in schools. But if 70% of the teachers are not paid, nobody can go to school. So I think all this needs to be looked at with a great deal of balance and flexibility. The question will also be how to do that. I understand that, you know, I understand this is a political issue, but uh, donor countries are reluctant to channel their funds through the Taliban authorities. They were channeled through the Afghan government before, and now they're reluctant to do that, and and at least until certain things are fulfilled by the Taliban, and we are exploring in the UN many alternative systems to make sure that uh, uh, services function, like paying salaries through UN agencies, for example. Now, all of this uh, is very technical, is far beyond my remit, but is important. But in the end, in the end, it it is important to maintain that dialogue with the Taliban because all these systems will be temporary in nature. And how to ensure that Afghanistan is viable, is a viable country, able to support its people, I think will will only be achieved through dialogue between the international community and the Taliban themselves. The dialogue won't be easy. We can look at interim measures to make it function. But in the end, that dialogue is important. And the dialogue goes both ways. When I was in, 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 in Kabul and when my colleagues were there, we all told the Taliban the same message. If you want your, your resources to be unfrozen, if you want the country to enjoy, again, substantive development, support by the international community, you also have to make steps in, in, in their direction. It's It goes both ways, but it is a dialogue. It cannot be a wall-to-wall situation.
0: Mr. Commissioner, I think we have time for one more question. I'd like to ask you a related question. Do you believe that nations that have played a significant role in Afghanistan's recent history particularly the United States and some of the NATO nations that had a military presence there for 20 years. Do you believe these countries have a moral responsibility to accept more refugees and absorb some of this need or desire from Afghans to resettle outside of their country, given the current conditions?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I think that this this, there's there's 26, 27 million refugees around the world. I'm not talking about the internally displaced. I'm talking about the refugees. Uh, you know that less than 1% is resettled from countries' neighboring conflicts or crises to wealthier countries. So this burden sharing between the countries that are near the crisis and the richer countries further afield is minimal. And I think that all countries hosting large numbers of refugees deserve more burden sharing in that sense, deserve richer countries to take more of those refugees. This is a general point. And this point applies certainly also to Iran and Pakistan. So I'm glad that some of the countries that have been involved in Afghanistan for many years, as you said, have put forward offers to take more of those refugees as a consequence of what has recently happened. The question is more complex about people that are inside Afghanistan, because this is what happened in August. There was a lot of direct evacuation out of the country, mostly of people who had links with those countries, mostly in a bilateral fashion. But that is much more complicated now because now the country is under the control of the Taliban. So I think that we need to focus on resettling refugees from neighboring countries. And then if there are particularly complex cases inside the country that deserve to be considered for uh, 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 traveling outside and being resettled to to third countries. This will have to be looked at on a case-by-case basis, but it's not going to be simple.
0: Mr. Commissioner, I think I can actually squeeze in one final question. I think our listeners and viewers would be interested to hear a little bit more about uh, the challenges and opportunities potentially that your teams uh, working on the ground across Afghanistan are facing at this moment. How are things different um, from the pre-August 15th environment till now?
1: Like I said, uh, and you know, I, I know that this may sound counterintuitive, but security has been easier, better. Security was the big challenge for us for years. You know, since I am in this job, I've been several times to Afghanistan. I remember 2016, 2018, 2019, and all the, in all these visits, the main challenge, the main thing I discuss with my colleagues is, how can we go to place X, to place Y? with the fighting, with the risk of attacks, of uh, 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 unexploded ordnance uh, um, of uh, uh, um, you know terrorist uh, uh, threats to our operations. Now, all of that, I, I wouldn't say all of that, but a great deal of that is now better. We are in a phase in which access is possible. So I think that we need to take advantage of this window. And let me repeat it once more. This window allows us, because we are needed in Afghanistan, we are required. I think the Taliban understand that without our support, the humanitarian crisis will be even worse and they cannot cope with it. So we need to use that space, one, to deliver, and two, to have dialogue with them and to try to bring them to more reasonable positions on all the complicated issues of rights that we are discussing with them.
0: Now we actually are out of time. I want to thank you, Commissioner Grandi, for joining us here today for this very important conversation.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.